0: I've always had back pain, but this was substantially worse. I had had it since I was 18, off and on. I was knew something was wrong with my back, but to this point, it was completely, like to that one day, things changed. So my mother saw what I, what I was going through with the pain, and she gave me a, one of her because She had back pain, and uh, this is definitely a hereditary component. So that was my first introduction to an opioid, and uh, I liked it immediately. I mean, it helped the pain, but I also liked the the mood it gave me. Everything kind of felt good. So immediately I was drawn to it because this one pill took away the pain, and psychologically as well, I felt good. And my mom recognized right away that something was up because uh, I think I had asked for another one a few hours later. I remember her laughing kind of, a nervous laughter. Oh, I can see what's going on here. No, 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 you're not going to get any more of those.
1: That's a clip from an audio series put out by the government of Canada on the real stories of opioid addiction. That particular story is of Daryl, a doctor whose addiction started with treatment for back pain and quickly spiraled out of control, ending in several stints in rehab, being arrested, losing his job and his family. Sadly, his story is a common one. These addicts are the carpool moms, the soccer dads, lawyers, doctors, our sisters and brothers. These are members of our communities. But we usually don't hear the beginning of the story. We always hear the end when the media tells us the salacious details. And here they are. According to the government of Canada, in 2016, there were over 3,000 apparent opioid deaths. And by 2018, almost 4,500, which is almost one death every two hours. In British Columbia alone, emergency medical services responded to over 13,000 calls in 2018, each responding to a suspected opioid-related overdose. While news coverage of overdoses, deaths, and the toll on the healthcare system have waned, the crisis is still prevalent. It affects so many systems, healthcare, education, government, and society itself, and it affects the lab too. I'm Kathy Bowers. And this is the objective lens. As you will learn in this episode, this is a complex and multi-layered problem. But let's start with the basics. I want to make sure we were all on the same page. So what are opioids? These are pain-relieving drugs that include prescribed medications such as codeine, fentanyl, morphine, oxycodone, hydromorphone, and medical heroin. Along with incredible pain relief, they can induce euphoria, an intense high, which leads to their incredible addictive qualities. Short-term side effects include nausea, constipation, and headaches. Side effects from long-term use can include increased tolerance, liver damage, infertility, and overdose. All in all, some pretty serious medication here. And it's important to note that these drugs can be produced and obtained illegally. So how did we go from a useful painkiller to an overdose epidemic? The situation gets out of hand when individuals take drugs that are not prescribed to them or not as instructed by their physician. It also stems from the rise of illegal, potent synthetic drugs, such as fentanyl and carfentanil.
2: The biggest struggle with the opioid crisis is manyfold, but um, probably the problem originated, I guess, from the widespread prescription of opioids for treatment of pain, um, which I guess was well-intended to treat especially acute pain or um, post-surgical uh, pain as well, um, but without perhaps physicians being aware of the, um, the potential for addiction and complications thereafter.
1: That's Philip britz mckibben a professor in the Department of Chemistry and Chemical Biology at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. I reached out to him for this episode because he's worked with CSMLS before. He was the subject of a feature article in 2018 called Designing a Better Drug Test, He also spoke at our national conference. He has a particular interest in the opioid crisis and how science and research can help. A year later, and we're still talking about it. I asked Philip the basics, like why is this a problem, and why are there so many overdoses?
2: The issue nowadays is, of course, is the emergence of increasingly potent opioids um, that um, especially uh, such as fentanyl or carfentanyl, that are extremely toxic. and, uh, and worrisomely now are being uh, present in other drugs that are, say, adulterated. And many people are um, unintentionally overdosing because being exposed to these very toxic synthetic opioids.
1: So the risk is the rise of synthetic drugs, muddling the makeup of the opioid itself. But there's more.
2: The other concern, of course, is the availability of uh, cheap and expensive opioids um, coming, in, being imported into Canada, such as fentanyl, and so they're readily available uh, and relatively inexpensive. So you have uh, overabundance of prescriptions of opioids and plus the availability of these, um, say, illicit, uh, synthetic, um, very potent opioid uh, analogs now that are increasingly being, say, available in the marketplace.
1: According to Philip, the ease of access to these drugs is another major factor— They are highly addictive, readily available, and can be altered into something you are not expecting, a scary mix. According to the government of Canada, over 90% of opioid deaths are accidental, meaning the user likely wasn't aware of the strength or components of the drug that they were taking. This crisis is beyond just a healthcare issue. Like I said earlier, there are many systems that are affected. Here's Philip's take.
2: I kind of... Consider it as a, a convergence of two main, say, public health crisis: the opioid crisis, sort of related with chronic pain, and I think a mental health crisis as well, with you know prevalence of anxiety and depression, but um, you're often heavily medicated um, and not not in a very optimal way. That often relies that, that often requires lifelong um, you know reliance on on medications that are potentially toxic and prone to addiction, and we've been involved with some studies involving, say, um, clinically depressed uh, patients. Uh, In many cases, they have multiple issues um, and are often prescribed a half a dozen drugs or more. Um, And many of these drugs that they might be consuming uh, is unknown to the physician or psychiatrist as well. Uh, So there's a a large uh, percentage of of folks out there that are self-prescribing medications to relieve symptoms, but often, I think, associated with, with pain and mental health, which, anxiety, depression, et cetera.
1: But where does the lab fit into all of this? And how can lab professionals play a role in this major health crisis? Philip has found a way for the lab to be part of the solution. But first, he explains how the lab currently detects drugs.
2: How to combat the opioid crisis? I guess um, one uh, way that we're trying to contribute is to develop uh, methodologies that um, allow, say, healthcare providers, physicians, um, psychiatrists, etc., that provide them objective ways to to ascertain whether their patients are, say, um, adherent to their prescribed opioid and they're not, say, substituting it with something else that's um, not recommended and potentially dangerous, um, such as fentanyl or other. Uh, illicit uh, opioids such as heroin. Um, so it's, there's a need, especially for these classes of medications, since they have a very high addictive potential for, for monitoring patients. The problem, though, is uh, most physicians or labs, uh, the tests required for doing routine measurements are suboptimal. They're often not very specific or, or they're, say, um, prone to false positives or they're not convenient to do on a sort of regular basis.
1: Based on the shortcomings of current testing, Philip has developed a novel drug testing methodology that can identify more than 50 specific drugs and their metabolites in a fraction of the time, as compared to the current two-tiered approach. This platform analyzes 10 or more samples simultaneously, bringing the runtime to under three minutes per sample, all with better accuracy, selectivity, and coverage than conventional immunoassays. I'll let Philip describe what he and his team have been working on.
2: However, we've been recently uh, engaged in the area of uh, drug surveillance um, or developing methods that allow us to comprehensively profile drug metabolites in uh, samples such as urine or serum samples as a way to to do a number of things, but importantly, to confirm adherence, drug adherence, um, as well as reveal um, self-medication, which is quite prevalent um, uh, amongst uh, certain populations.
1: In that clip, he mentions drug adherence and self-medication. Terms often used when I was researching this topic. Patients are taking healthcare into their own hands, and then due to addiction and the availability of synthetic drugs, it is leading to tragic results. Philip goes on to explain the work they are doing and why it's so important.
2: So we're trying to develop uh, methodologies that um, are fast, high throughput, inexpensive, but Uh, Essentially, they're non-targeted. So we can survey uh, a broad range of opioid classes, um, including, you know, known opioids. But, you know, the problem with uh, compounds such as fentanyl, fentanyl is not just one compound. Actually, it represents a family of synthetic opioids. And many of them are not even known or known to exist at this point. So there's uh, a constant emergence of new synthetic variants of fentanyl. So it's very hard to stay on track of what new compounds are available out there. So our method potentially has the ability to survey, um, in an unlimited sort of fashion, a wide array of of known and unknown drugs of abuse, including um, various analogs of fentanyl.
1: Philip patented his technology in 2016, and to test the concept, he collaborated with a clinical and animal diagnostic lab services organization called Clinics. I wanted to know more about this technology, so I spoke with Howard Lee, CEO of Clinics Corporation.
3: We are a, a testing uh, laboratory. Uh, we have two operations, one in uh, Mississauga, Toronto, and that is a research and R&D laboratory. And we have a FDA CLIA-accredited facility in Buffalo, New York where we run um, essentially LCMS technology. We recently um, have begun working with McMaster University on a patent that uh, we've licensed to develop a technology that's capable and able to analyze and look for thousands of drug compounds and their primary metabolites in a urine sample or a uh, serum sample or a blood sample. So our work over the last few years has been have been to really develop this technology for the marketplace, um, and to really take this to a commercial level, uh, and and to deliver it for the United States and then eventually back into Canada.
1: Before we continue, it's important to understand that there is a difference between the U.S. and Canadian laboratory markets.
3: The laboratory market in Canada is very f- concentrated and it's controlled by um, may, mainly two large groups, um, and that's pretty much it. So whereas in the United States, it's, it's, it's much more what, what I would call independent lab-friendly. So for, for us, it was easier to open an accredited FDA-approved laboratory in the United States than in, than in Canada,
1: Clinics Corporation is more indirectly involved with the opiate crisis, as they are a testing facility, a diagnostic lab for reviewing routine patient prescription adherence, criminal court cases, or police activity. The methodology helps identify those going down the path of addiction. Now, they have the ability to provide quick and convenient home tests, in-office finger prick tests, or quick dry urine tests. This can be delivered through a retail or clinical channel or through insurance networks. With a small amount of sample, blood or urine, they can look for thousands of compounds. According to Howard, the average North American takes three to five prescriptions. The problem is heightened when pain management is involved, because with time, you need higher dosage.
3: We're we're a processing laboratory in, in the U.S., so we're... We're able to, um, in most cases, we, we have physicians that send us uh, samples for analysis. Uh, these are pain clinics. So we're able to identify the drug compounds and let them know whether there's the patients are taking the compounds that they're supposed to be or whether they're on compounds that they're not supposed to be. So that's what we do in, in the U.S. And in Toronto, we've got um, similar instruments. But we're really looking at this new platform to help us um, and help our clients and help people that have been affected in in this area. One of the things that uh, we have come across is this whole issue of of polypharmacy.
1: Polypharmacy? In case you aren't familiar with this, polypharmacy is when individuals take multiple drug compounds through self-medication, prescription, over-the-counter, and or supplements. This is a real problem. Physicians have to manage all these drugs, but this is where it gets complicated. You also need to know how they are being metabolized in the body in order to understand the effectiveness of these drugs.
3: So the problem with physician management is that they don't typically look for everything. They only want to see, you know, I want to see these these, these things that I want to look for, and that's pretty much it. So that leads to a lot of problems because what happens in a person's body is dictated by the entire environment. So it's dictated by what they're taking that's being prescribed, what they're taking by themselves, which is over the counter, what they're supplementing, which is with supplements, and then the body generally how it how it looks and metabolizes these compounds. So the existing technology can't do this, which is where why we've looked to move to this new platform where we think we can deliver much, much more information, much more effective management tools that look at the entire picture around a person, uh, like f- from a, from a, you know, what, what I would almost call a personalized medicine approach.
1: Wouldn't that be great? We would be able to help the individual and ensure the physician has a clear understanding of the medication being consumed. Currently, the instruments in labs do not allow us to see everything. So what could this personalized medicine approach really offer?
3: So we can actually give you a personalized uh, uh, prescription management, polypharmacy, toxicology, uh, supplement report, including uh, things that, like all the over-the-counter drugs, and that what impact that has in the body at that point in time. So the amount of information we we can provide is basically about 100 times more information than what the existing laboratories do. And we think that whole picture is very vital in effectively managing these patient populations to hopefully um, catch them early before they go down this wrong path. And that's where we think we can maybe help much, much earlier on to identify risks, warning factors. Um, and and the potential of people developing bad habits. And we think that's a combination of looking at everything.
1: Managing patients with a complete picture to help with early detection sounds like a truly important role in the opiate crisis. So where does this lead us? Howard shared so much about the current situation. But I do wonder... How could the lab be part of the solution?
3: I think there's a couple of areas. The first and foremost for us is to, to ensure that uh, uh, we bring this technology along and it gets ready from a commercial perspective, uh, which we're doing. Part of the issue with, with this was uh, we, we, we had to develop a, a custom software package, so that's ongoing now. And as we're doing that, then we started building in all these uh, very advanced uh, systems, in, in, including machine learning, artificial intelligence, um, predictive analytics. So we're combining that with this new technology platform, giving the the um, let's say the the user, whether it's a doctor, or pharmacist, or the consumer, a very very complete picture of what's going on in their body. You know, at any one point in time, and then what you know, part of the challenges of this is always to get samples from these uh, these collection points, whether it's a, a clinic or a pharmacy um, or the person's home, um, and and make it very simple and easy and effective.
1: They have combined some novel collection techniques that are simple and easy to use, that are suitable for a laboratory to analyze quickly and put onto the instruments. This combination will allow healthcare professionals to deliver a truly effective solution.
3: Really, really it's going to be one piece of a puzzle. Like, it, it's not the, the entire answer, but at least it is a piece that we think can be much more, um, uh, you know, I guess, in terms of uh, being, being able to identify people earlier on that may go down the wrong path and may have risks for certain things. That that's really what we hope it can do, and and that's really um, with this complete system, you hopefully get a much clearer picture of what's really going on, um, because most of the testing that's do- going on right now is just not able to do that. So that's where we hope that this system, with software, the technology, the collection systems, and being able to deliver this at a pharmacy level at a clinic level at home maybe is 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 a good direction ahead
1: the advancements in the technology cannot be ignored we cannot wait to see this being implemented in all future labs
2: i guess one consideration or issue that comes up a lot when you're doing drug surveillance including opioids is um the ethics behind that right is Um, In some cases, for patients who are admitted to a hospital, then, you know, they're often compliant with providing a urine sample for for analysis. Um, But for other patients, sometimes the question remains is, even if the physician or psychiatrist has this information, they can confirm someone who might not be compliant with their prescribed methadone, and they are abusing heroin, for example. Um, Or they're coming for a prescription of oxycodone, but they're, say, They might be selling that, trading it for something more potent on on the street. Um, The question is, even if you can confirm that with our, say, our methods for drug screening, um, the question is, ultimately, with the patient, what is the patient going to do with that information? Or is it really going to make a big impact if the patient ultimately has free will? and, And the problem with addiction is it's hard to make rational decisions, right?
1: Philip brings up a great point, the point of ethics in this opioid crisis It is difficult to make rational decisions when you are addicted, even with the support and care from loved ones. The best support is not always enough to save a life. Solutions are coming forward, from new technology to assess drug use, and medication that temporarily reverses the effects. You may have seen naloxone kits at your local community centers, arenas, or public spaces. Just recently, Delta Airlines announced their plan to start carrying them on flights, prompted by a mid-air death. Naloxone is a temporary but effective solution that restores breathing and removes the opiates off the receptors of your brain. It blocks the effects of the opioids to your body. In Canada, two types of take-home naloxone kits are available. One is a nasal spray, and the other is an injectable. Both can take between two and five minutes to take effect. Having these kits is one approach to saving lives, but it's reactive, only coming into effect once the drug has been taken. I wanted to explore some more proactive solutions, something that could be done at the beginning of the cycle. This year, the Open Caucus, held by the Senate Liberals, discussed the opioid crisis in Canada, one of the doctors who participated in the discussion was Dr. Caroline hosat Ducassi, a medical resident in emergency medicine at McGill. She highlights that more work needs to be done around who is prescribing what and how much. She makes it clear that doctors are not ill-intentioned, but must be aware of atypical prescribing methods so changes can be made quickly. Appropriate training for doctors will go a long way, as well, Doctors want to easily access information about patients' medical history, which will require improvements to the information systems. It comes down to education and better communication between doctors and patients. As Dr. DeCasse states, opioids cannot be banned completely because they serve a place in the healthcare system, specifically around pain management. A great place to learn more about the best practices is opioid wisely, an offshoot of Choosing Wisely Canada, a campaign to help eliminate ineffective use of healthcare resources. The Opioid Wisely campaign aims to facilitate conversations between clinicians and patients to reduce harm when using opioids. As a result, they gathered a set of 15 specialty-specific recommendations for when the use of opioids should not be first-line therapy giving guidelines for physicians who may need support when it comes to managing patient needs. While these resources exist, we are still a long way from mitigating this crisis. It's not just an overprescription problem. It's not just an addiction problem. It's not just a socioeconomic problem. It's all of these things and more. Working together with other healthcare professionals and patients we will be able to reach a better and healthier solution. I'm going to leave you with this thought from Daryl, the doctor we heard at the top of this episode. There is a reason he spoke about his experience, why he chose to share. It's not an easy thing to do. There's so much shame and judgment placed on addiction, but he felt it was important to share in order to help others.
0: It's important to me to tell, to get out there, and, and, and public speaking, any form whatsoever, to explain this stuff to people. Like, why is it people will break into pharmacies and prostitutes? Well, I want to give the answers, to try to humanize it, explain why people are doing this. And I now see the patterns, which I never would have seen before when I was a physician and passing judgment on, on, on addicts, giving them second class treatment, which is endemic as well across emergency rooms in North America. That needs to change as well. There's no room for judgment in the workplace, especially in healthcare. No room for judgment, we need to start looking at people, uh, people who are identifying as uh, substance users, whether they're on chronic opioids or a full-fledged addiction. We need to look at them as somebody who, who look past the manipulation that to, to realize why are they trying to manipulate? Because this is a sick person, and I want to let the doctors and nurses understand and try to treat people with with uh, compassion.
1: The Objective Lens is the official podcast of the Canadian Society for Medical Laboratory Science and is produced by Michael Grant and myself, Kathy Bowers. Writing by Michael Grant, Kate Hendricks, Natalia Harhai, and Kathy Bowers. Administrative support by Red Miller Minor. Technical support by Karthik Desai. If you like this or any of our other episodes, please rate them and like our podcast. We appreciate your support. Also, click on the subscribe button so you'll automatically be notified of our new releases. If you're a medical laboratory professional, you can take a short quiz after each episode. Upon completion, you'll receive a certificate that verifies professional development hours. Access the quizzes at podcast.csMLS.org. While on the website, you'll find other great materials for each episode, like links to relevant articles. Have something to say? Feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or Facebook using the handle at CSMLS. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.